Luke 19, 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, And my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes were, and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him, and they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. Well, it's a significant thing in Scripture when we read that Jesus wept. Jesus has all authority, remember, in heaven and in earth. And Jesus surely believed Romans 8.28 that God works all things together for good like no one else ever believed it. And so when we read the four Gospels, we find actually a man who is perpetually hopeful and joyful and in control of himself because he trusted the Father perfectly. And therefore, he had absolutely no worries, no doubts, no fears, no anxieties. Would that we could be like Jesus in that respect. And yet, on two different occasions, we find that Jesus wept. On two different occasions, one here and one in John chapter 11, we find that the human emotions of sorrow and sadness overcame even Jesus. Not because he had lost heart, not because he had lost control of himself, but because it was evidently right for him to weep on these two occasions. It was right for him to be overcome with grief. It was right for him to sorrow, just as it is right for us sometimes to be overcome with sorrow. But what does it tell you that even Jesus himself could be overcome with grief? Remember, Jesus knew the end from the beginning. So he knew about the resurrection. And when he wept over Jerusalem, he knew about the thousands of people who would be saved in just a few short weeks on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And he knew that there would be myriads of myriads of souls from every tongue and tribe and people and nation worshiping around his throne in eternity. He knew all of those good things that were to be, all of those reasons for rejoicing. And yet here in verse 41, though he knew all of those things, he saw the city and wept. And the question tonight is simply, what can we learn from that fact? What does it signify that the most joyful, hopeful, faithful man who ever lived, a man who had no reason to worry about the future, can actually be found here in Luke 19 weeping? It must mean, among other things, that he really was human, right? But it also must mean that whatever Jesus saw in Jerusalem was devastating to behold. It must mean that sin as Jesus saw it, is worse than we think it is. Because how often do we find that we weep over the sins of our city or even our family or even our own lives? Jesus weeping must mean that sin grieves him more than it typically grieves us. And his weeping must also mean that he loves souls, even perishing souls. That is where the vast majority of the inhabitants of Jerusalem were in that day. 
Yes, many of them would be saved at Pentecost, but by and large, the things that would have made for this city's peace, verse 42, were hidden from the people's eyes. So much so that most of the population within a generation of these events would be destroyed for their sins, verses 43 and 44. And Jesus knew they weren't going to repent, and yet he wept over them. Jesus longed that they might repent and return, even though he knew that most of them wouldn't. Jesus loves even perishing souls, even people who are on their way, certainly, to hell. And we should note that well. Yes, we believe in the doctrine of election. That is, we believe, as the scriptures teach, that God chose ahead of time that he was going to save some sinners, undeserving sinners, and not all of them. We believe that God has a special love for his elect, for his chosen ones, and we rejoice in that if we are among them. But we must never use those true biblical doctrines to try and paint a picture of a God who is callous toward the unbelieving, toward the non-elect, toward those whom he knows will be someday in hell. Even though he knows they will be in hell, and even though God himself will be the one to justly cast them there when the time comes, God does not enjoy the slaughter. God does not judge sinners vindictively or with glee. No, as we see in this passage, the Lord weeps over lost souls. The Lord weeps even over lost souls whom he knows will never repent. And he prophesies and sends judgment upon them with tears in his eyes. We must always remember that. And that's what I want to make much of this morning, the tears in Jesus, or this evening, the tears in Jesus' eyes. I want us to continue considering those tears tonight and what they mean and why they were there, and what they say to us who are reading these words 2,000 years after the fact. And in order to do that, I just wanted to divide the sermon tonight into three parts. And that is to say that I want to run through this passage all the way through three different times, applying it in turn to three different situations or three different groups of people. And the first and by far the longest application to be made is concerning the city of Jerusalem the city of Jerusalem. Quite obviously, this passage has application for that ancient city, right? That is the city where the passage is set. That is the city over which Jesus wept. That's the city that was destroyed with barricades and so on. And so I want us to take just a few moments off the top to think about ancient Jerusalem and about what Jesus was saying to that city at that time. A few minutes of historical context to this passage, if you will. And I want to ask a couple of questions to help to help get us there. And the first one is simply this. Why did Jesus weep over Jerusalem? Why did he weep over Jerusalem? Well, I know I already mentioned that Jesus wept over her sins and over her destruction. But what were Jerusalem's sins? And why were those sins so serious that God would bring about destruction? That's really what I want to think about. What were the problems in Jerusalem as Jesus saw it that day? What was it specifically about this city that made Jesus weep. And if you follow along with me through these verses, I think you can categorize the sins of the city of Jerusalem into three areas. And the first is ignorance. Ignorance. Notice what Jesus said of the great city in verse 42. See if you can detect ignorance. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for your peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Did you hear it? If they had known the truth, if they had known the things that would have brought about peace, they might have turned and repented. But they didn't know. They were ignorant. 
the way Jesus weeps over them also and the way Jesus pronounces judgment upon them suggests that they were willingly ignorant. They had shut their ears and their eyes to the truth and God evidently said to them something like this, okay, fine, if that's what you want, I'll simply shroud you in darkness. I will hide the things that would make for your peace from your eyes until the day of destruction comes. So their, their problem was ignorance and willful ignorance at that. And specifically, Jesus says they were ignorant of the things which make for peace. They were ignorant of the very truths that would have set them free, that would have brought them joy, that would have made for peace with God instead of enmity with God. And what would those truths be? Well, the truths that we were just reading in Ephesians 2, right? We were once enemies, but now by the grace of God, we've been made friends. The truths that would have made for their peace with God, for their freedom to be his children, were the very truths that Jesus had been living out before them and the very truths that he had come to live and die for on the cross. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that these people were ignorant of him as their Savior. They were ignorant of the fact that God himself was walking in their midst. They were ignorant of the fact that Jesus was about to die a death that would be for their peace. They were ignorant of the fact that they could not save themselves, but that God, through Christ, could. Indeed, most of the people hung on Jesus' every word, verse 48, simply because he was a miracle worker and had a silver tongue. Not because they recognized him as the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, the one who would be chastised for our peace so to put it simply these people didn't understand what we would call the gospel they were totally ignorant of it and jesus wept because of their ignorance and then i want you to see secondly that he wept because of their prayerlessness their ignorance and then their prayerlessness notice verses 45 and 46 again why was jesus so upset why did he weep and then why did he go into the temple and drive out the money changers and, as Mark and Matthew tell us, actually start turning over their tables? Well, because the people had turned the house of God, the house of prayer, into a marketplace. Isn't that what the verses say? They were using the temple as a cash cow. And we'll come back to that marketing in a moment. But it's easy often to overlook the fact that what Jesus is saying in this passage is not simply that the house of God was not supposed to be a bazaar, but that the house of God was supposed to be a place of prayer, a place of crying out to God, a place where people came like the tax collector in Luke 18 to beat their breasts and plead for God's mercy. And I want you to notice that, well, the problem in Jerusalem wasn't simply the presence of secularism and profiteering in the temple. The problem was the absence of prayer and true religion in the temple as well. If the right things had been there, the wrong things wouldn't have. The problem was the absence of people really walking with God, the absence of real devotion. So there was ignorance. There was prayerlessness. And then thirdly, notice that Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem because of its selfishness. Its selfishness. That's the other issue in verses 45 and 46, isn't it? All sorts of people, Pharisees, priests, bankers, cattle merchants, shepherds, and so on, were using the religious hubbub that was there in the city of Jerusalem solely for their personal gain. And here's how it worked. People from outside the city would come long distances in order to bring sacrifices and to worship the Lord. And you can imagine it was difficult to bring a sheep or a cow or a dove on a 50 or 100 mile journey on foot. And so to make religion easy which ought always to raise red flags in our mind, to make religion easy, 
the cattle merchants and the shepherds were right there inside the temple compound offering various animals for purchase as the folks came in from out country. And they did this not because they were so concerned that the people would really be able to worship the Lord with the right sacrifices, but because it was profitable. They were like the restaurant owners in the airport. You know how that works, right? They could turn an even higher profit in the temple because once inside, their customers had no other options. And that's the way they worked it. And then there were the money changers, the bankers there as well. Many of the folks had come from even further distances to worship the Lord in the temple, some of them so far, in fact, that they needed to exchange their foreign currency for the local coinage. And here we are at your service, was the reply of the bankers. They set up tables right inside the Lord's house, not because they wanted to help the worshipers be able to present their offerings to God, but because they knew they could turn a profit by bartering in the currency exchange. And then, of course, the religious leaders, the priests and so on, had to have been complicit in all these things because they ran the temple property. They would have had to have been the ones to give approval to all this bartering. They would have been the ones that would have been renting out the stalls in which these various tradesmen were doing their business. And so they were making a buck off of the temple as well. And what it all boiled down to was that so many people in the city of Jerusalem were concerned not about the purity of worship, not about really welcoming and helping the incoming pilgrims and worshipers, not about God's glory and the sanctity of his house. They were concerned simply with their own personal agendas and desires and hopes and wallets. And so in the face of the ignorance and the prayerlessness and the self-promotion and self-centeredness of the capital city, Jesus responded strongly in this passage, did he not? And that's the second question I want to ask about the city of Jerusalem. We ask, why was he weeping? But then we ask, how did Jesus respond to Jerusalem's sin? And again, let me just give you a three-part answer quickly. First, as we've been saying, Jesus wept. He wept over the city. Now, we've spent a good time on that already, so I won't hover here for long. But I just want you to notice that Jesus was not simply angry about these sinners and their sins. He did not merely pronounce judgment upon them. He wept for them. He grieved for them. He sorrowed over their sin and over their fate. He yearned that they might repent for God's sake and for their own. And we ought to take a page from his book. We ought to weep over sin because it offends and defames and dishonors God and because it leads to the destruction of people who are created in his image. That's what Jesus was doing in verse 41, weeping for God's sake and for the sake of perishing sinners. And we ought to do the same. So he wept. But then also notice that in the face of the city's sin, Jesus was angry. He was angry. Luke doesn't go into the detail in verse 45, but he makes it clear that Jesus didn't simply walk up to the various merchants and bankers and politely ask them to leave. He didn't just walk up and ask if he could have a look-see at their business permits. No, we're told that he drove them out of the temple. And as I said, Matthew and Mark both inform us that he actually flipped their tables over and brought the whole operation to a crashing halt. So just picture it. Imagine the coins splashing across the floor. Picture the various animals now let loose, running to and fro around the temple grounds. See the feathers and the dust flying up into the air as Jesus, according to Mark 11, overturned also the seats of those who were selling doves must have been an amazing sight and a lot of people must have been highly indignant but the point is here's a picture of what jesus thinks about prayerless self-centered religious people 
He hates everything about what they're doing, and he's angered by it, and he will overturn and wreck it when the opportunity arises. And so while we note and note well that Jesus was weeping over sin and sinners, we also must understand that that doesn't mean he's a bleeding heart who would never hurt a flea or never punish sin. In fact, that becomes even more obvious when we consider the third way Jesus responded to Jerusalem and to her sins. Namely, he wept, he was angry, and then thirdly, he prophesied destruction. Prophesied destruction, and of course we see this in verses 43 and 44. And we read about it in the history textbooks as well. Namely, in A.D. 70, just one generation after these prophecies, a Roman general named Titus did just what Jesus had prophesied. He surrounded the city of Jerusalem. He and his army laid siege to it until the people trapped inside were exhausted and starving. And then he and his army breached the walls, sacked the city, burned the temple to the ground, and killed or enslaved the majority of the entire city. The Jewish historian Josephus numbered the slain in that siege at 1.1 million people, most of whom were Jewish citizens inside the city and not Roman soldiers killed as they sacked it. And it was all just as Jesus had prophesied. That's how serious God is about sin, that he would allow a city so near to his heart to be ransacked and bloodied and destroyed because the people there would not believe in his son. They would not recognize, verse 44, the time of their visitation. And Jesus had no problem laying these things out for everyone to hear. He hates sin. Now that's the historical context. That was the application for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and it came true in A.D. 70. Jesus wept over them. He felt for them. He grieved over their impending judgment and their sin, but he also hated their sin, and his father sent judgment upon it in the form of Roman legions and mass destruction. That's what this passage was about for the people of Jerusalem. That's the background. But then the question, and the reason why I spent all that time on that, the various kinds of sins and the various ways Jesus responded, is so that we can now ask, has this passage any application for our day? What can you and I learn from Jesus weeping over and Jesus' judgment upon Jerusalem? And that brings us to a second point of application. The first point had to do with the city of Jerusalem, but now the second point of application is to think about the city of Cincinnati. The city of Cincinnati. And what I simply want to ask is this. Do you see cause for Jesus to weep over our city? Is our city characterized by the kinds of sins that had overrun first century Jerusalem? Would Jesus overturn any tables in our town? Would he prophesy destruction, destruction and judgment upon it? Now, I know we're in a different situation than that of ancient Jerusalem. Jerusalem was, by definition, a different kind of city than any other city before or since. So understand that. Jerusalem had a unique place. This was the metropolis where God had placed his temple, where God himself had promised to dwell, and where the largest number of his chosen people had been placed to live. And up until the time of Jesus, who became himself the temple of God, John 1, the city of Jerusalem occupied a unique place in the world. And so surely Jesus expected more of the city of Jerusalem than any other city anywhere, anytime. Her privileges were unique. God himself lived in the city. 
And of course, that's not true in the same way of Cincinnati or of Columbus or Washington or London or even modern-day Jerusalem. God no longer lives in a city the way he once did. And so I realized that Jesus had a great deal higher expectations for the level of spirituality and obedience in that city than he has for any other city in the world, including our own. And so surely he does not weep in exactly the same way over Cincinnati as he did over Jerusalem. Surely we have not been given the opportunity or responsibility that she was. And yet the question is still valid, I believe. Even though Cincinnati is not nearly important in God's plan as ancient Jerusalem was, is it possible that Jesus looks down upon our city and weeps over its sins? I believe so. In fact, just think about the three main areas of sin that we saw in ancient Jerusalem and ask yourself if they aren't prevalent in our own city and in our own day. Is there ignorance in our city? Are the vast majority of people in our city confused about and even willfully ignorant about the gospel that would bring them peace? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm not even thinking about the irreligious people in our city. Our city, first of all, has become one of our nation's strongholds for a religion that teaches men and women that if they'll just go to Mass and take the communion, and if they'll confess their sins to the priest, and if they'll say some Hail Marys or give some money to the church or do some community service, their sins will be wiped out and everything will be fine. It's Jesus plus works plus religion, which is actually not Jesus at all. And hundreds of thousands of people in this metropolitan area buy into that religious scheme willingly, even though a slight study of Scripture would reveal all of it to be bankruptcy. And then there are also the Protestant mainline churches in our city, which I believe at one time made up the majority of the religious population here. There, in those places, people file in by the tens of thousands every Sunday to hear messages from men and women who openly admit that they're unsure about the reliability and accuracy of the Scriptures. And where the message is often so vague and so touchy-feely that it sounds far more like Oprah Winfrey than it does like this Jesus who turned over tables and prophesied destruction on Jerusalem. Then add to that the conservative Protestant churches, our kind of churches, who seem to place no emphasis on the fruits of repentance and who convince people that a quick, easy decision signs, seals, and delivers eternal bliss And we can see that even among the religious and so-called Christian population of our city, there's widespread ignorance. And it's willful ignorance, too. Because if any generation in the history of planet Earth had an opportunity to know the truth, it is the English-speaking world of today, isn't it? Never has literacy been so widespread as it is today. Never has the Bible been so inexpensively and widely available Never has there been such a proliferation of Bible-based electronic media. And yet, never has a country, never has our country, I should say, been so totally ignorant of biblical Christianity and, on an even lesser level, basic biblical morality than we are. And I believe Jesus weeps over our city, and I believe he is angry over the willful disobedience that's in it. And I believe he weeps over our prayerlessness as well. That was the second thing, wasn't it? Prayerlessness. Surf the internet sometime. Don't spend lots of time on it, but surf the internet sometime and just look at a sample of conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical churches in our city. 
And you will find that you are hard-pressed to locate very many of those churches who designate any time for corporate prayer, for pleading God's mercies together. And in the churches that do set aside time, it's nearly always a Wednesday prayer and Bible study where a large percentage of the time really is given to Bible study and very little to prayer. And then, even when you find a church like ours at 9 a.m. on Sundays where an entire service is given over to nothing but prayer, if you were to attend, you would be distressed to find that perhaps only a quarter of the congregation actually attends the prayer meeting. And if the people in our city who believe that we have direct access to God through Christ are not very good at praying, then who is? And Jesus must surely weep over the prayerlessness in our city and in its churches. And then what about selfishness? Is Cincinnati a selfish city? Has Cincinnati proven herself to be so interested in personal gain that she would lay aside God and his ways and his worship? Well... I think our newly arriving casino is evidence that that's true of us. And I think the near total disregard for the Lord's day is evidence of it as well. Any of you who are over 60 can remember a day when the majority of businesses chose to be closed on Sundays because that was a day set aside for the employer and his employees to worship the Lord. That was a day, a time period when the employers cared enough about their own lives and their own employees that they gave themselves and their employees every opportunity to be in the house of God, to be in the house of prayer on the Lord's day. But that day is no more. Nearly everything today is flung wide open on Sundays, and most Christians are happy that it's that way. We get more done that way, or else we're willfully ignorant that the Bible paints a very different portrait proving that the almighty dollar and the sports teams and personal convenience are more important than whether I and my neighbor are given time to pray and to think and to worship Christ. So I submit to you that our city is just as sacrilegious and just as sad as ancient Jerusalem was. And this is without having said very much at all about the tens of thousands of totally irreligious people in our city whose sins are piled up to the stars. So I submit that surely Jesus must weep over our city and over our sins. I submit to you that we're just as right for judgment as Jerusalem was, and it will come, if not uh, sooner, later. And I submit to you, therefore, that you and I ought to weep for our city as Jesus wept for Jerusalem. Notice I didn't say we ought to be disgusted over our city, that we ought to walk around criticizing our city, or that we ought to cut ourselves off from it in holy huddles. But we ought to weep for it and for our own part in its demise and its dysfunction. We ought, every time we come over the crest of that hill on I-75 in northern Kentucky and see the city of Cincinnati nestled in the valley below to weep over her, we ought to pray all the more earnestly for this lost city and we ought to do all in our power to give her every opportunity to recognize the things that would make for her peace. But do we? Do you weep for the city of Cincinnati? Or are you just busy taking care of your own problems and enjoying your own hobbies and attending your own church and enclosed in your own world? If that's you or if it's me, then we ought to weep for ourselves. And that brings me to the third and final application point tonight. We've thought about the city of Jerusalem. We've considered the city of Cincinnati. And now let us consider finally the city on a hill. The city on a hill. 
You may recognize that phrase, the city on a hill, from Matthew 5.14. That's what Jesus called his followers. That's what Jesus called his church to be, a city set on a hill, shining forth the light of Christ for weary travelers to see and be attracted to and come to. And every individual church ought to be such, including this one. In fact, it works out really well uh, for an illustration that our meeting place is literally set on a hill, isn't it? Such that if we put a giant steeple or a great big light on the top of our church building, people would be able to see it from blocks away. But of course, more than a steeple or a great big light, we ought to have a faith in Christ that is visible and attractive. We ought to be like a city set on a hill, Jesus says in Matthew 5. We ought spiritually to be a beacon that lonely and needy travelers can easily spot and come to as a place of hope and a place of help and a spiritual home. So the church at large in the world, even though she's scattered about all over the nations, is like a city, a city on a hill serving as a light in the world. And every individual church ought to be that as well. The church is a city. But here's the question. Does Jesus actually weep over that city as well? And the question even more directly tonight is whether or not Jesus, when he approaches our homes and our lives and our corporate gatherings, like he approached Jerusalem in verse 41, might actually weep over this little city that is Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church. What do you think? Let's just consider one more time the reasons Jesus wept over Jerusalem and see if any of his tears fall close to home. Is there willful willful ignorance in our church? Surely not on the level we saw in Jerusalem or in our city at large, thankfully. By very definition, the members of a New Testament church must have the knowledge that the people of Jerusalem rejected. By very definition, the members of a New Testament church must believe on Christ as the one mediator between God and man, as the only Savior, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so in a very important way, yes, we who believe are far ahead of the ignorant people in Jerusalem and in our city. And we should thank God for that. But because we are far ahead, even more is required of us than was required of them. We said how great a privilege and how great a requirement was on the city of Jerusalem because it was so important. But we have a greater privilege and a greater requirement because we not only have God dwelling in our city, if we are in Christ, we have God dwelling in our hearts, don't we? So we have been given much more than even the residents of ancient Jerusalem and to whom much is given, Luke 12, much is required and therefore we cannot content ourselves with the fact that we are surely not as ignorant of the things that make for peace as our neighbors are or as the inhabitants of Jerusalem were 2,000 years ago we ought to know more than them by the very nature of our personal relationship with God in Christ and it's no feather in our cap if we do know more than them and so we still have to ask albeit on a different level if there is willful ignorance in our church or in any of our individual lives? Do we know the things that make for our peace as well as we ought to know them? Are we taking full advantage of our opportunities to learn and grow in Christ? For many in our congregation, and perhaps for some tonight, the answer is frankly no. In fact, I can't tell you, I know you're the Wednesday night crowd, and so you'll hear this uh, with a grain of salt, but I can't tell you how much it grieves me to let out on a Wednesday like this one where the weather is wonderful 
and to see so few people. And I believe the Lord grieves over it as well. What opportunities he's given us here to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the truth and how few in our congregation take full advantage of those opportunities. How few of us really know how to answer our co-workers' questions or our classmates' doubts about Christianity. But it's not for lack of opportunity. It's for lack of want to. It's for lack of effort. It's for lack of us taking advantage of the unique opportunities that we have as a church to study the scriptures together. And I believe Jesus grieves over that. And we ought to grieve too. Some of us for ourselves and our own negligence and all of us for the negligence of our congregation as a whole. And then there's the issue of prayerlessness. I certainly have no idea how much time or effort anyone but myself really puts into his or her personal prayer closet. But I grieve that on an average Sunday, only about six couples and two to three individuals come to pray corporately. And I grieve that out of those 15 or 20 people, only about half of them find that time important and sacred enough to arrive on time. And I grieve that those corporate prayer meetings probably say a lot about our individual prayer lives as well. And I believe, again, that Jesus grieves over that. God's house is to be a house of prayer. But how many of his people actually ever pray in God's house? And how many who do pray from time to time are eager to be there and do it? And finally, let's ask ourselves about selfishness. Thankfully, none of us are selling sheep or running a currency exchange in the foyer. But I wonder how many times we, all of us, myself included, walk through those doors with hearts that are as much fixated on ourselves and our own pursuits and needs as was true with the cattle merchants and the bankers in Jerusalem that day. Surely we're not as crass as they were about it. But I have to tell you again that I'm grieved with how few of us notice and greet visitors to our church, with some of you as exceptions, and how sometimes even regular attenders who just don't fit into our demographic or our typical circle of friends are ignored. And that's really nothing more than self-centeredness, self-absorption. Nothing more than a preoccupation with our own friends and our own agendas and our own comforts and our own I've got to be wherever it is. In fact, I have a sneaking suspicion that this is the reason why our fellowship meal attendance has been so terribly poor the last half year or so. I think, honestly, that some folks who used to come have just realized that if they come, few people are going to speak to them. And they'll probably end up sitting by themselves, mostly, and that it won't really be worth coming only to feel left out and alone when they do. And I also say, children and parents, that I see this cliquishness happening in our kids as well. But cliques aren't the only way that self-preoccupation rears its ugly head. What about our conversation before and after service? Just listen to yourself. Are you mostly talking to other believers? This is one of the few chances you have to be with all these other believers. Are you mostly talking about your business dealings and your recent purchases and your family situations and your sports teams? Or are we talking and thinking about God and the things of the eternal world? Are we really just as concerned about temporal things as the money changers were, only just a little more sophisticated in the way we show it? Now hear this well. Jesus is not angry with us 
the same way he was with the unbelieving city of Jerusalem. If we are in Christ, he loves us and he cares for us in spite of our sins. If we are in Christ, all the anger of God, all the wrath of God was poured out on his son so that we now are his sons and daughters by adoption. And no good father hates his children or remains angry with them. He loves them. Hear that well. God loves us. He loves you. And yet, because God loves you, and because he has given so much to you and to me, he grieves when we go astray. He grieves when we do not live up to the family name. He grieves when we sin and are lazy and selfish and willful. And I submit to you, therefore, that the Lord Jesus has reasons to grieve over us. I submit to you that when he looks at the city set on a hill that is Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church, he loves her, but surely he also weeps over the lack of progress that we seem to have made these last two or three years, over the backsliding that's in many of our lives, over our inability to sustain a corporate prayer meeting, over the way that some of us neglect the privilege of hearing his word, over the way that so many of us have contented ourselves to be wrapped up in our own problems and our own hobbies and our own few friends at church and our own individual worlds. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and wept over it. And may it be that soon Jesus would have precious few reasons to weep over this little city. May it be soon that we would see the value of what we've been given in this little church. May it be soon that we would see the value of being called the children of God and living in the kingdom of God. May it be soon that we would see the value of living in the city set on a hill. And that we would give heart and mind and soul and strength to make her as bright as she can be.